Welcome to Accelerated. I'm your host, Vitaly Golem, partner and mobility and sustainability global practice lead at award-winning tech investment bank, DrakeStar. On this season of the podcast, we're hearing from some of the global leaders in everything electric and autonomous, moving us quickly into the future. On this episode, we cover a different kind of an autonomous vehicle as I speak with William Santana Lee, chairman and CEO of Nightscope. Nightscope makes indoor and outdoor autonomous security robots that have been preventing crimes in the real world for over six years. The company just went public on NASDAQ through a Regulation A listing. Before founding Nightscope, William founded a series of mobility companies raising over $300 million in venture capital. He began his career at Ford, where in a decade he climbed from an internship in electronics to becoming a director on the M&A team. We spoke about being an unemployable entrepreneur, his thoughts on where we are with autonomy and why baby steps are the way to go, his mission to make U.S. a safer country, crowdfunding, the future of robotics, and much more. Bill, thank you very much for being with us today on Accelerated. I'm excited to get an update on the company. Um, as I mentioned before we hit record, I remember seeing it when I was a corporate VC uh, some years back, and it's pretty exciting, uh, the vision that you had then and, and where you are with the company today. So uh, we'd love to dig into a few different questions, and I, and I always love to start at the beginning. So tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what you were like as a kid. Uh, I was born in New York City. Um, my first interaction with quote-unquote crime was when I was five years old. Uh, we got robbed, and my dad said, that's enough of that. And so we moved to what some might consider a suburb of New York City, which would be Stanford, Connecticut, where I grew up. Um, I was the long-haired kid in a heavy metal band um, at night playing uh, guitar and then during the day was in the honors classes and uh, you know studying a lot and I didn't come from a wealthy family so I tried as much through uh, Berkeley, Yale and, and Carnegie Mellon to try to take as many summer classes as possible so I was able to, to graduate a year early actually. Uh, it was bloody painful but uh, then I cut my hair and uh, off to Corporateville at, at Ford Motor Company. So funny story, I, I'm very similar background. I, I grew up playing in bands. I was a drummer um, you know, through junior high, high school and, and played in every single nightclub, it feels like, uh, by the time 15 here in Bay Area. Uh, so very similar. But um, yeah, you, you, you went on to quite an academic career to start things off. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you studied. Uh, so I, um, when I was out here in Berkeley, I think it was after my sophomore year in high school, uh, it, was, it was funny because I had the really long hair. I'm 16 years old. And I'm sitting in the back of the general astro astronomy class at, at Berkeley with like actual real college students. Um, so that, that was fun. Studied a little bit of calculus and math at, at Yale. And then uh, at Carnegie got a, uh, a bachelor's in electrical engineering with a, a minor in mechanical. And then uh, subsequently went on to uh, Ford Motor Company in Detroit and did the uh, also difficult uh, night classes and got my MBA from uh, University of Detroit um, while still working like a maniac at, at Ford. Yeah, so you spent like a decade at Ford and, and it was interesting that you, you started as an intern and then it seems like every year or year and a half you changed jobs and, and got all the way up to... Uh, Obviously unemployable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you look at my yeah. LinkedIn profile during that, that period, it's like this, this kid can't keep a job. Um, and I, you know, 
all kidding aside, I was uh, grateful for the opportunity. I, I learned so much in, in 10 years. I got to see literally almost every facet of the company uh, from, you know, component systems and vehicle engineering to manufacturing and rationalization to coming up with affordable business structures and, you know, finance stuff, uh, mergers and acquisitions, um, worked on four different continents. It, it was a wonderful, wonderful training ground. Yeah, and it's interesting. You 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 got into M and A, and it seems from that you learned a lot. And when you left uh, Ford, you spent the following fifteen years. Um, and and I guess like many entrepreneurs or all entrepreneurs, you you became unemployable. And you never worked for anybody else again. Um, so so you spent the following fifteen years uh, building your own four different companies, and you raised a lot of capital. Tell us a little bit about Greenleaf, Model E, Built to Order, and Carbon Motors. Uh, I think Greenleaf was uh, you know ill advised. I was an entrepreneur, so. I convinced the board uh, of Ford Motor Company to release a quarter billion dollars to me to do a roll-up in the used parts industry. And for your uh, listeners that might not know what a roll-up is, is basically buy a bunch of small companies that look similar in nature and uh, you end up with one big one. Uh, so for those old school folks, you you know, uh, back in the day, maybe AutoNation, Waste Management, Blockbuster kind of all grew up through a, a roll-up. Um, so I was able to buy... Uh, let's see, 22 companies in 11 months. Uh, There's a little bit of a <laughs> madness going on. Um, and built the second largest automotive recycler, which is still operating today under uh, uh, the ticker LKQ. Um, and then uh, went on, uh, you know, after you do that, you, I had my own board, I had my own HR, my own treasury. It kind of gives you that a little bit of that entrepreneurial bug. Uh, and I got recruited by SoftBank Venture Capital to come out here to Silicon Valley and see if we can do some interesting stuff in the automotive space. Um, you know, I, I massive credit to, to Elon uh, Musk for, for getting Tesla, you know, really off the, the ground. It's, it's, it's very difficult. The auto space is, uh, has a lot of bad habits and it's also capital intensive. Um, but, uh, basically started working on, uh, the, the passion, which was, you know, after nine 11, uh, I had a former, uh, a, uh, at the time active, uh, law enforcement officer call for, for help, um, and wanting to see if we can build a new kind of specialty law enforcement vehicle. And I've been working with him ever since to try to see if we can better secure the, the country. Um, and we can go into that if you like, but that's that's kind of the, the, the short version. No, that's great. Uh, thanks for the quick overview of that. I mean, it, it's always interesting to see how people get to where they are and and kind of this, this, this you know, how do you become an entrepreneur and then how do you become this overnight success 20, 30 years in the making? <laughs> so, yeah, it's interesting. So this brings us actually to Nightscope now in 2013. Tell us about what inspired you to start the company. I, it was a combination of me being still really pissed off about 9-11. I think, you know, yeah, Sandy Hook and the Boston Marathon bombings is like enough. Can, we, we need to, as a country, fix this problem. You know, the first role of government is what? To protect its citizens. Uh, the country's over 200 years old. We're under 46th president. And somehow we have a $2 trillion negative economic impact of crime and terrorism on the U.S. every single year. Um, and we kind of think that's okay. And I don't think that's okay. I, I think our, the founders of our country would be horrified uh, to see that, you know, literally going to work, uh, school, the movie theater or the mall, like you have a risk of being shot or killed in our society. I don't, I don't think that's an appropriate 
nor acceptable. Everyone in this country has a right to live in a safe country. And um, I, I love the U.S., I love my country, but it's structurally flawed in one very important regard, and it's how we handle uh, law enforcement, homeland security, uh, and the like on our own soil. We're, we're really good uh, outside of our borders. Um, the military has a wonderful process to actually drive innovation. It's a little costly and takes a lot of time, but there's actually risk capital and we give a soldier anything he or she might need in a theater of war. We don't do that for the officers and guards on our own soil. And that's what we're trying to fix. No, it's interesting. It, it probably has something to do with the fact that all the police departments or all different agencies are kind of different and, and they're all making decisions on their own um, instead of having kind of one centralized approach to everything. But that's probably a different podcast. Um, so if we, if, we, if we stick to kind of the mobility aspect, the autonomy aspect, and, and the really interesting technology there, tell us a little bit about, you know, a little bit about the, the actual product, the robots that uh, Nightscope makes. Yeah, so we build autonomous security robots uh, known as ASRs. And it's a unique combination of uh, self-driving autonomous technology, so similar to a self-driving car, uh, robotics, uh, AI, and electric vehicles in an effort to do basically two things at the same time. Uh, one less maybe obvious than the other. Uh, the first one, if, if you don't spend a lot of time in, in physical security, is just physically being there stops a lot of negative behavior. Uh, so providing that physical deterrence, a lot of people wonder, like, why the machine's so big? You know, uh, our most popular ones, you know, five foot tall, 400 pounds, uh, pr primarily patrolling uh, outdoors. And it's to provide that physical deterrence, no different than you driving down the highway and you see a patrol vehicle on the side of the road, it almost doesn't matter what speed you're doing, you're gonna pump those brakes almost as a reflex, uh, kind of same effect. Um, and then the second is, how can we give the two million officers and guards uh, smart eyes and ears and their voice on the ground uh, at eye level in multiple locations at the same time? So literally build some tools for them to be able to do their jobs much, much more effectively. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you're touching on a couple of things like the broken glass theory, right, and economics and and um, and the presence. You know, I think it was actually pioneered by New York, if I remember correctly, New York City, where they would put strategically put uh, uh, patrol cars, just park patrol cars around the city and to create a deterrent. Uh, so it's quite interesting. Now, um, the technology part of it is is really fascinating. And, and you've had to do to have these very simple robots that do simple, seemingly simple things and patrol, there's a lot of really interesting technology. Uh, talk a little bit about the components, you know, what you had to develop, how you're able to get uh, all the different things together to build these robots. <laughs> yeah, not, not so simple. It's basically a, a self-driving car at low speed. Um, so you got to operate 24-7 in the rain at night. You know, we've been through now six winters and six summers, probably nearing a million four hours. Uh, out in the field and um, while you have a client down your throat like this is not an R&D project or some science fair project like we actually have uh, clients utilizing the technology um, so two-thirds or three-quarters of what's in the machine is proprietary to us so we design everything uh, we engineer it pre-COVID I used to get really ticked off uh, people would come over tonight to go pad quarters like yeah so who designed all this stuff like we did who engineered all the software, mechanical, electrical, firmware? We did. Where in China did you get these built? And I just want to like, I go through the roof. I'm like, okay, come over here and let me show you. And so we physically build the machines ourselves here in Silicon Valley, and then we deploy and support them. Uh, we hold contracts from Hawaii through Texas to Rhode Island, uh, operating 24/7. Uh, 
so you know you've got a combination of lidar, sonar, accelerometers, uh, wheel encoders, and a bunch of crazy software to be able to patrol uh, indoors and outdoors, primarily outdoors, um, in dynamic environments, and that could be you know, where there's a lot of people, there's a lot of cars or none at all, or you're going up and down a nine story parking structure. Uh, you got to be able to basically be in uh, a lot of areas and it's completely hands off. There's no nobody in there for as many people on the Internet think there's people in the robot. Um, and it's, you know, hands off, uh, you know, I guess the automotive equivalent of level five. Uh, you know, there's no one kind of remote controlling them. So you mean it's not uh, it's not a guy in a robot costume like uh, Elon had? going on that <laughs> <laughs> no no we've been accused but no <laughs> so so tell us a little about how um how does it integrate with current law enforcement like it, it, you know in the public space versus the kind of private campuses how does this work together with the uh, the human element um so everyone kind of focuses on the shiny object which is the the robots but what the magic's kind of behind the scenes uh, the machines generate over 90 terabytes of data a year that no human could ever possibly process. So we put that in a digestible format, uh, which we call the KSOC or uh, just a browser-based user interface that allows the uh, officer, the guard or 911 dispatch or the security operations center to interact with the machines uh, remotely. So they can get live streaming feeds of all the data. Uh, you've got 360 degree uh, high definition live streaming or recorded uh, video. You can speak through the machines as if it's a mobile PA system. You can automate broadcasts uh, by time, by location, randomly or, or manually issue them. Um, and then you can do you know, some forensics and investigation. So again, it's basically eyes, ears, and voice uh, on the ground. And, and talk about a little bit about the economics. You know, how does this work? So let's say, you know, give us uh, some customers that you already have and, and how does it work and, and how do they calculate uh, the, the kind of the ROI in this case? Where we do really well, the ROI is one of two things or both. Uh, either you have um, some criminal activity happening and you haven't been able to kind of fix the problem, uh, or you have a budget issue, meaning you don't have enough resources to address uh, the crime issue or both. Um, and so our clients can be, you know, Bank of Hawaii, Citizens Bank, you know, a Samsung, you know, major corporations, uh, could be a law enforcement agency. Uh, numerous hospitals, uh, casinos, uh, manufacturing plants, logistics facilities, basically anywhere indoors or outdoors, you might see a guard or an officer patrolling is an opportunity uh, for us, including airports and rail and, and the like. And we offer the technology on a machine as a service business model. Uh, so I like to say it's um, luxury automotive per unit economics, uh, but the margins look more like a software as a service company. Uh, so we sign year-long contracts running 24-7, and uh, the machines uh, basically recover the cost of the machine in the first calendar year. Then the second, third, fourth, fifth year, you're basically printing money except for the, the maintenance and service and you know, kind of operating expenditures. Uh, so a little bit of a different approach than in Detroit, where at the time we could you know barely cover our cost of capital. Yeah, so it sounds like they, they basically... You know, uh, Steve Blank had this had this really interesting article that I've pointed a lot of entrepreneurs to years ago, where he's talking about, you know, if you if you're trying to you know launch a business and you're saying, hey, we're going to reinvent the wheel here, that's a lot diff more difficult for a potential customer to kind of hook onto than for you saying that you're doing evolution. And it sounds like you've connected your business model with the way uh, campuses, you know, private or public 
are actually getting security guards right now, right? Where they know they have an annual budget for for number of bodies, you know, a certain amount of presence. Yeah, or to put it uh, maybe in, in that parlance would be, you know, our machines go out at an effective price of three to nine dollars an hour, uh, where a guard would typically be fifteen to thirty five an hour, or an unarmed, uh, sorry, an armed uh, off duty law enforcement officer, you know, could be on the in the range of about eighty five dollars an hour. Uh, so that does provide um, some level of comfort and understanding of how things operate. But again, these are not always necessarily one-for-one -one replacement. The, you know, the country doesn't have enough guards and officers to even be doing the job that they're doing today. Uh, so in a lot of cases, we're helping redeploy resources where uh, humans are a lot more effective and where the monotonous, computational, heavy stuff uh, the machines can do. I'm really excited to share something a long time in the making with you. My first online course. Over the years, I've trained thousands of founders through my book, Accelerated Startup, and my infamous Pitching Like a Boss workshops and keynotes. Like I've done for thousands of founders, I will teach you how to pitch like a boss. And for the first time ever, I will be doing it in a cohort-based online course. This is the world's most comprehensive and intensive course for entrepreneurs and future founders on pitching. It will help you craft the perfect pitch for investors and customers. It will also help you master public speaking. Get funded, communicate your vision to grow your team and dramatically improve sales of any product. Check out golem.net slash pitching. That's G-O-L-O-M-B dot net slash pitching for more information. See you there. Yeah, and, and it's and there's a lot of parallels, for example, with uh, trucking industry. Right? And we'll talk about this in a second. But there's, you know, for a number of years, there's there's a big panic. You know, truck driving or driving profession in the U.S. is the biggest profession in the country, and the panic was that autonomous vehicles are going to take away those jobs. When in reality, there's not enough truck drivers. So any kind of assistive technology that can make their life better and easier, uh, it's very helpful. And it sounds like very similar in this space as well. No, 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 no. The robots are coming to kill everybody and take everyone's job. Were you not paying attention? I mean, like, we need to get the media talking about <laughs> yeah. where you're going. <laughs> That's right, yeah. No, it's interesting. You have a mix of science fiction, but then you start looking at technology and, you know, there's, there's uh, last time I checked, there were no million robot taxis on the, on the road yet. Um, so you said you've already been out there for about six years in, in production and, and the rob robots have been out there patrolling malls and campuses and office buildings. Um, they must have seen some action. Tell us a few uh, stories about kind of what what have they you know what kind of crimes have you been able to prevent? You know some interesting things that uh, some anecdotes. I, I th I'll start a different way, which is I'm fascinated that there are any crime fighting wins. I mean, if you go to nightscope.com and just go to the crime page, you can see a long list of you know things we've been able to accomplish. But you know, relatively speaking, you know, 95, 99 percent of the time. A guard and officers, there's nothing going on. It's not what's like on TV, right? And then the statistical probability of us being there at the right time, at the right location, uh, something goes wrong and we're able to help, like it kind of, you're nearing nil, it's near zero. But somehow uh, we've helped a law enforcement agency issue an arrest warrant for a sexual predator. We helped another law enforcement agency apprehend an armed gunman. Uh, we help with a domestic violence uh, case. You know, a lot of workplace violence is, you know, stuff at home uh, creeping into the workplace. Um, we stopped a fraudulent insurance claim and, you know, the list continues. And I, I still find it fascinating that we have not just one, but numerous opportunities are, are sort of wins. 
and uh, and we're just getting started to be to be frank. No, I mean it's fascinating. Um, I think yeah, you probably prevented many more probably an order of magnitude more that you don't know about because of the presence, but uh, still, you know, criminals are dumb. And uh, you've been able to catch a few. It's like a dash cam for the, for the world in 360. Yep. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's, a, that's a whole genre of videos on YouTube of people doing interesting things. Um, so it's great. So let's shift gears a little bit about to kind of how you've built the company. Uh, you, you went through a number of rounds financing the company uh, since its inception. You've done both conventional venture rounds, more or less, and then crowdfunding. So walk us through a little bit uh, through that. I mean, you've done a lot of funding and financing through your career, through your companies, and and you started M&A, arguably, at Ford. So uh, you've, you've gone through this journey in, in a kind of unconventional way. It's interesting to hear the, you know, the decision point and, and how you got there. Oh, it's super easy. You just download all the money from the cloud. It's, it's just, you know, it's super easy. Um, you know, I think one, of the thing that one thing that founders, I, I often try to get them to think about is uh, a lot of folks are kind of programmed to focus on product market fit, product market fit, you know, does your product match the market of what you're trying to go after? And they spend zero to very little time on capital to company fit. You know, what is it that you're actually trying to do and what capital do you actually really need and where should, where should that source be? Um, and in a lot of cases, you know, typical venture capital is not appropriate for almost every single company out there. It is a small portion. Um, you know, I'll put it in the positive. If a bunch of social media folks uh, that built some fantastic companies all retired and started a fund and they wanted to buy 20% of your company and steal two board seats but you're working on a social media company, like you should just do the deal. Like there's, there's no discussion to be had, just go. But in our case, you know, name me the fund or the GP that's fluent in law enforcement, physical security, robotics, and hardware, and has a track record, and we should pay a premium for that capital, like kind of doesn't exist. Um, so that's kind of the first point. Second, you know, we have slightly outlandish mission, which is, let's see if we can make the U.S. the safest country in the world. Um, you are not going to do that with four institutional investors in an ivory tower under a rock somewhere. Like, that's not going to work. You're going to need to engage a mass portion of, of society to, to be involved and, and help the company grow. And so, yeah, we've, we've got 28,000 investors, which, you know, for some folks thinks, you know, it's kind of insanity. And you know we're in the middle of a public listing, and I don't, we don't know of any company that's gone public with that many shareholders. So uh, this is uh, also un, uncharted uh, territory. But you know, you ask who's on the cap table, it would be their judges, lawyers, politicians, NYPD retired detectives, FBI, CIA, DHS, uh, vice presidents of malls, you know, you know, major leasing companies. I mean, there's all kinds of folks that have a financial motivation to change how we or reimagine public safety in, in the US. And that's kind of the right strategy for us. That may not be the right strategy for, you know, a bunch of different companies. All I suggest is that folks have a think about it before you, you know, embark on a on on your venture. Yeah, I mean it's really interesting and um without getting too much into the weeds, but with that many investors on the cap table, you've had to probably do some pretty creative SPV structures, special purpose vehicle structures and things. 
So that's uh, it's always fascinating, kind of engineering this this whole process. Now, more on that same note, not many companies have been successful with equity crowdfunding, but it seemed to have worked well for for Nightscope. What do you? Th why do you think that is? And what tips can you give to other entrepreneurs if they're wanting to pursue that direction? First, I've got a that term crowdfunding drives me crazy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, when Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs, you know, goes does an S one IPO uh, for an issuer. They're running around two weeks behind closed doors doing what? Crowdfunding. They're getting every Tom, Dick, and Harry to buy the shares. <laughs> like, and like to have sometimes a you know that 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 term have a negative connotation it just drives me crazy. Um, I I think you know, first and foremost, I tell founders, you know, regardless you know what, which path you take to finance something, is you got to believe in what you're doing down to the bone that you will do the irrational, illogical, and sometimes stupid things to force a, a transaction or something to happen. And if you don't have that in you, how are you going to convince the media, the analysts, your bankers, your board, your recruits, your clients, your suppliers to work with you? Um, I think people are now realizing that, you know, my management team and I are serious about what we're doing. Uh, we're willing to do whatever it takes and we will force the outcome to happen of what this country needs. Uh, so when people start, I mean, said differently, if you were to ask me eight years ago when we started, you know, would the entire nation be interested and in focused on reimagining public safety? Um, I would say, no, that was, when's that going to happen? But, you know, kind of here we are uh, at the, you know, intersection of numerous important technologies and at the intersection of a really important recurring societal problem. Um, so I think the, the story's important. I think there's a fascination around the technology. It was like, oh wow, the thing that was on my Hollywood movie screen is now sitting literally in front of me. Um, and honestly, I think people are sick and tired of the ongoing violence and, and stupidity that happens across our nation. I mean, you know, half jest and, and half in serious, like people worry about the robots. I, honestly, from where I sit, I worry about the humans. I mean, every few seconds, there's a murder. Every few seconds, there's a property crime. Like there's no robot involved. Like this is literally human activity all day long. And what I try to have investors understand is the quote unquote, the market for crime is never gonna collapse. You know, the, the market's down today, right? Uh, and I'm sure it'll be up and then it'll be down. It'll be up and they'll be down. But seven billion people are not going to wake up tomorrow morning and all start, you know, acting appropriately and not causing, you know, issues. Um, so I think if you've got a recurring revenue business model for a recurring societal problem, you, you're probably onto something. No, that, that's that's fantastic, right? If you want to be a billionaire, you just have to get one dollar from a billion people, and um, that that's one way to think about it. And and I think you have some good parallels. I mean, as far as crime statistics and and technology, if you look at uh, the CCTV uh, systems in in cities like London, and you can see a big drop. You know, they they've obviously invested a lot of money into those systems because they work. And and you're doing kind of a roaming version. That's an important point. I mean, I mean, in the U.S., I think there's about 70 million cameras. Crime still has a two trillion dollar negative economic impact, right? Uh, annually. Um, our country's 85% rural and suburban, like you're not going to pipe power and monitor a camera every 500 feet. It's not going to work, nor does it actually deter criminal behavior. So a different solution needs to be put forth.
When companies start to catch fire and blitz scale and look for capital to fuel that growth or look to find the right exit strategy, they often seek the counsel of investment bankers. At Drake Star Partners, we work with some of the leading companies in global tech on capital raises, M&A, corporate carve-outs, SPACs, and much more. And we're pretty good at it. Our team of over 100 technology sector experts across nine offices in six countries is comprised of not only career bankers, but experienced executive venture investors and technologists. Drakestar Partners is the number one ranked and fastest growing mid-market investment bank across US and Europe. While I focus on mobility and energy transition sector, along with all things Silicon Valley, my partners from the Pacific to the Atlantic and around the world lead in software, media, communications, and everything in between. Learn more about us at drakestar.com. Um, so switching gears again a little bit, I mean, you've built an autonomous security robot. It's an autonomous vehicle, any which way you think about it. What are your thoughts on autonomy and autonomous vehicles in general? Uh, in general, I guess twofold. One, I'm fascinated and want everyone to get where they're going. Um, I'm just not in agreement with the path to commercialize the technology. Um, a lot of folks are doing the aerospace equivalent of I'm going to go to Pluto first and I don't want to stop at the Mars or, or Moon or the moon, um, where they're working on the most difficult problem first. Um, and that's going to cause uh, a lot of difficulties because that's not how you typically engineer something. Uh, we're the crawl, walk, run people. Like, hey, prove to me that this can work and has a, a viable proposition at, you know, less than three miles an hour. And then once we've got that kind of working, then we can work our way up to 10 and 25 and 35, et cetera. Um, and I think that's a much more rational, sane way uh, to commercialize a very difficult set of technologies. Um, for those more technically oriented on or listening in, you know, engineers are really good at solving problems with constrained boundary conditions. Like what's going on in the autonomous space is literally the opposite. Hey, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Engineer, I need you to put that 4,000 pound unmanned vehicle on a public road. No safety regulations, no, no insurance framework, no legal framework, random time of day, random climate, random everything. But I need you to make sure it works 100% of the time and never fails. Go. I mean, it's, it's almost a really, it's almost a stupid assignment, right? That said, there's been a lot of benefits from that really hard assignment where, you know, you've got a lot of progress on sensors. You've got a lot of progress on compute capability, on models and everything else. Um, but it's just a lot of, I don't want to say wasteful, but inefficient uh, uh, sources of capital. And at some point in time here, soon, I think, uh, th there'll be a self-driving autonomous winter um, and people start realizing, or sorry, the financiers will start realizing that there is not an exit here uh, and that there is only cash burn and there's no revenue. I mean, the 200 plus companies working on autonomous anything I think the collective revenue is close to zero. Um, so you dump almost $100 billion into a sector and nothing comes out. Maybe it's hard, you know? Um, so, I, you know, I have a different view. I, others certainly disagree with what, what I just said, but, you know, we have our path and that's kind of where we're focused. No, that, that's a great way to put it. I, I've asked a number of people who are kind of in the trenches developing different types of autonomy technolo autonomous technologies. And in, in every case, you know, they, they, of course, think that their approach and that they're the ones that are going to get there, but it's always two years away. And I think you have the most logical approach uh, as far as kind of incrementally getting there. What, what scares me is, you know, we're always recruiting awesome talent and 
when you do four interviews in a row with, you know, engineers that are at some of those firms and, um, you know, question is why you're leaving is like, I don't have confidence in, in what's going on here because they want to ship in, you know, next year or the year after we're nowhere near ready, uh, to ship. And I don't want to put my name on this. Um, and that to me is scary, right? You, 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 you don't want that kind of nonsense going on either. Yeah, that, that's an interesting, that's an interesting thing to think about. And then there's a lot of, you know, kind of, uh, public excitement about autonomy, uh, in the public sphere. But when you start looking under the hood, pun intended, um, it's, it, we're a long ways away, it seems. And I think you agree. Um, so, you know, by the time this, this comes out, this episode comes out, you, you will have completed your reggae listing. Um, talk a little bit about why it's important for you to, you know, for Nightscope to be a public company and, and how that, what, what kind of different reaction do you get from your clients, your customers who oftentimes are, you know, municipalities? I think there's a couple of different answers. One is just the practicalities, the blocking and tackling. Um, basically, the manner in which we raise the capital, we report to the US SEC every six months as if we're publicly traded. Or as I like to say, said differently, we, we have all the negative consequences of being publicly traded with no benefits. And so I, I kind of get right, yeah. the, the company out of, I call purgatory. Uh, so that's the first thing. I think second, you know, access to the wider capital markets, always uh, important, a lot more efficient capital. A lot of people in Startupville don't realize that, you know, financing of startups is like a really tiny sliver of the, the global uh, kind of economy. Um, and yeah, some, some uh, incoming clients would, would certainly prefer to, to work with a, a, a publicly traded company with appropriate governance and, and, and audits and, and, and cash and, and the like. Uh, but it's also helpful for recruiting. Um, it helps build the, the brand. Um, and, you know, I, I bought a lot of companies in my life, so has my, my CFO. Um, if the market cap's right and the timing's right, I mean, there's opportunities for us to be a, a bit acquisitive or a lot acquisitive. Um, you know, we're here in Silicon Valley, I forgot the latest count, but, you know, 20 odd, 20,000 startups and, and 95% of them fail every year. You know, there's a lot of interesting stuff that can be picked up as well. Now, um, can we expect an IPO or a SPAC uh, transaction in the, in the near future? Oh, uh, so we're actually in the SPACs I spent a good six months on. Um, at the time, you know, the sizing was a problem, but also at the time and still now, if the SEC is investigating, it's probably not a good place for us to want to be there. I have a huge problem with putting out projections in 2024, 25, 26 to justify some BS valuations so the bankers can get paid. I'm going to get in trouble for just saying that, but like, I'm, hey, I'm hey, not, I, I not, resemble that comment. <laughs> I'm not, not interested. Oh, let me put a pipe on top to validate the transaction. OK, whatever. Um, so we're in the process of, of we announced on December 1st of last year that we're in the process of listing on, on NASDAQ. Um, the manner which we're taking the, the company public, uh, the regulatory mechanism is, is through a regulation uh, A plus, but uh, the end result is a, a unique public listing. Uh, so if everything goes well, uh, you know, we should be trading under ticker symbol uh, KSCP. Yeah, and, and good luck with that. And, and by the time this comes out, uh, people will be able to look you up and, uh, and become an investor. So hopefully now um, 
talk talk a little bit about what we can expect. You know, I know you don't want to talk about numbers uh, into the next few years, but tell us a little bit about some exciting products and things we can expect from Nightscope in, a, in the next few years. I, I think it's on two axes. Um, as I like to say, criminals and, and terrorists don't care that you secure schools or hospitals or casinos or commercial real estate. Like if you're serious about the problem, you, you kind of need to be everywhere. And so I think over the next decade or two, you should see a portfolio of products of a variety of form factors and sizes to cover every nook and cranny of inside and outdoors. Uh, so a very wide portfolio. And then I think it should be very deep in terms of detection capability. Uh, so being able to have the machines do 100 times more than a human could ever do and be able to literally see, feel, hear, and smell. And if you can get that portfolio of products to do that, I mean, let's say we put a million machines in network to help the two million officers and guards and the FBI you know, publishes their most wanted list, like likelihood we catch the 10 people on that list goes a lot higher real quick, right? Um, if the two million officers and guards actually have tools for them to do their jobs more effectively and cover a lot more ground. Um, so I think that's kind of where I'm focused um, on ex expanding the portfolio and then expanding the the depth of capabilities. Yeah, very interesting. And now, um, where do you see robotics in 10 years? And, you know, we talked about it a little bit, but, you know, how do you think the job market's going to change? So, you know, here we are in the beginning of 22. What are we looking at, you know, at the end of the decade or in, in 32, as far as your products or kind of general approach to, to these helper devices, these autonomous vehicles, indoors and outdoors? Um, so a couple comments. First, we're not a robotics company, just to be super clear. We're an advanced physical security company. Our mission is to secure the U.S. I frankly, quote unquote, don't care what technology we work on. We just need to fix the damn problem. Um, robotics, honestly, we're kind of in the 1970s. I've been saying the same thing for a decade now. We're in the 1970s equivalent of the PC industry. It's just kind of leaving the hobbyist category. We've got maybe a couple handful of companies maybe making a little bit of progress, but it's still very early days. And if you ever want to figure out what's going to happen, just follow the cash. It's just, it's not that hard. Um, you know, why does, why does Google exist or, or eBay or PayPal or Facebook? It's because, you know, dozens of attempts were made, billions of dollars spent, you know, I think Google was a what, 13th search engine. It's because that risk capital was put forth. I, I forgot the numbers, but the latest that's in my head is, you know, $130 billion goes into startups every year. Like 80, if I remember right, 80% into software, 10% into biotech, and 10% into other. If you told me that $50 billion was going into robotics every year, I was like, okay, this is going to be super interesting in 10 years. But sorry to be the downer, but there's not enough risk capital and there are not enough roboticists in the world to come anywhere near what the media, society, or Hollywood thinks is going to happen. Um, and I, I think therein also lies the opportunity, right, for, for those that can gather the, the talent and the, and the capital to make some progress. But I, I think, um, you know, there's a, a lot of uh, ingredients missing. Yeah, that's that's incredibly insightful. I think uh, the amount of risk capital that goes in and, and kind of the innovation cluster that's required uh, to actually get there, um, rather than just talking about it and one time, you know, some expecting somebody to be a genius to have a breakthrough that will leap uh, forward by a decade. 
that that's not a that's not an expectation that usually happens uh, if you study the history of every wave it's always exactly what you described a lot of capital going in a lot of trial and error component technologies and finally getting there uh with with something that people can get excited about well uh, i i want to thank you for all that. that that was really interesting i I'd like to wrap up with uh with a question you know for folks who who've been around the block a few times and and you know knowing what you know now what advice would you have given your your young self starting your career at ford uh i mean there's so many off the top of my head in no particular order you know linkedin's your friend i know a lot of people like to make fun of it or whatever but in my eyes you know what moves the world around is people cash and relationships and having you know a strong network of folks that you can call on to help or you can be helpful uh is is can be very very uh important uh over the long term um i think you know in my eyes you pick something you love you know do what you love uh, life is short. You need to make a big impact. So don't waste your time on, on silly photo sharing stuff or, you know, stupid video games or whatever. Focus on something that can be meaningful to, si- to society and, and, and can help with a little bit of legacy that you left this place a lot better than, than when, when you arrived. Um, and, you know, as much as I hate it, I've now done more financial engineering than actual engineering, which I'm not proud of. Um, I think having the willingness to go spend the time to unstuck something because it's in your way, it, it's, it's gotta be part of a founder's DNA. It's like, I don't care what problem, you know, COVID's messing up supply chain. Okay. I guess that's a problem. We need to go fix that. You know, financing, this is a problem. Great. Okay. Now we need to go fix that. And you gotta be willing to, to dig in and dig in deep, uh, to fix the problem. Uh, because no one else is going to do that for you. Well, Bill, thank you very much. Uh, applaud your life's work here for the last almost decade of, of solving the crime problem, or at least uh, you know, helping uh, make this country and probably other countries a little bit down the road safer. Um, and I think everybody now you know, will be paying more attention. And when they go out and they see one of the Nightscope robots, they'll have a better picture. So thank you very much for being on the show. Good luck with the with the reggae um, listing and we'll be watching Nightscope with a lot of, uh, a lot of interest. Thanks for having us. And, and don't forget everyone long Nightscope and short the criminals. That was my conversation with William Santana Lee, chairman and CEO of Nightscope. If you'd like to connect with me to discuss mobility and sustainability, you can find me online at golem.net. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to give us five stars on your favorite podcast platform and share with your friends. We'll see you on the next episode.